Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. I can't tell you how excited I am today when I see that on-air sign on my switchboard because we're on air. We're on air to give you some amazing information about how you can make your mind float on air. Well, not exactly. We're going to be talking about remote viewing, and what I mean is that you're going to be able to move out of your body and do all sorts of different traveling and visualizations and perceptive skills will come your way through remote viewing. You may think I'm a little bit idealistic, but John Herlowski has completely captured the experience of becoming a remote viewer in his book, A Sorcerer's Apprentice. And it is one book among many that he also references in his book that really do ground us in this experience of remote viewing so that we also can become remote viewers. John Herlowski, so glad to have you here. Hello, hello, hello. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you for <laughs> inviting me. This is an exciting book, and I imagine finally seeing it and having it published is, is opening up doors where people are asking all sorts of questions, such as, well, how can I become psychic? How can I become a remote viewer? How how can I also do this? And so as we open this show about about remote viewing, first explain what it is in contrast to all sorts of other phenomena, whether it's astral projection or shamanic journeying or psychic visualization. Explain what remote viewing is and how an individual can begin to engage in the practice of being that. And then we're going to see how many other very profound questions we get to ask you about this process. So what is remote viewing and how do the listeners engage in this process? Well, remote viewing is um, an aspect of psychic phenomena or consciousness-related phenomena. Um, It's a little different than all of the others because it has a basis in science. Um, Remote viewing is actually a protocol and methodology that was created by scientists. And so it has its beginnings in science rather than simply experiential. Um, Basically, Remote viewing is the scientifically validated form of extrasensory perception, whereby an individual who has been trained in the protocol and methodology uh, is capable of accessing information distant in space and time and often shielded from normal modes of perception. And they get this information outside of the normal five modes of perception and yet are actually able to describe um, something distant in space and time and bring back accurate information on the same. So basically what it comes down to is a scientifically validated form of clairvoyance or extrasensory perception. So how does one avail themselves of opportunities of learning that protocol, practicing that protocol, and then mastering it to whatever degree possible. Well, you know, it's interesting that um, you mentioned that because, um, as you'll see from reading my book, unlike most of the people who got involved in remote viewing um, after it became declassified, uh, who were proponents of psychic phenomena, I was not. Um, I was a skeptic, and that's the reason for the subtitle. Um, I was actually brought up as a as a uh, mathematician with minors in uh, engineering and philosophy at Marquette University, and I went on to become actually a uh, a law enforcement officer for two large metropolitan police departments. 
so my background was one of skepticism rather than um, more affirmative towards the psychic phenomena. And being someone who had never had a psychic experience in his life, someone who had never had a premonition or a, a deja vu that came true or had seen a ghost or anything like that, um, I came from a different side, if you will, of um, those who um, embrace the art and science of remote viewing. So what I had done was, you know, I, I searched out one of the original military remote viewers, a man by the name of uh, David Morehouse, and, um, and this was after extensive investigation into the phenomena and also to find out more about what I was getting into. And it was through David's classes that I actually um, found that my previous experience was extremely limited and mm. that the phenomenon of remote viewing was actually a reality. Mm. So there are military remote viewers still out there um, mm -hmm. that do teach. Um, Paul Smith, Lynn Buchanan, um, Joe McMonagall, um, a few others that uh, are, I'm sure that you can find out there on the on the internet, and of course there are people like myself who have learned from the original uh, group of military remote viewers, and who also teach out there as well. Mm -hmm. um, remote viewing it follows a protocol that enables individuals to explore the target, and then to see how accurate their explorations were. That's a one-sentence explanation of a kind of involved process. Would you mind going into some of the details about the protocol such that individuals can really appreciate the effort to be empirical about understanding this process of, of the psychic phenomena, so to speak? Well, you know, it's perhaps unfortunate that uh, most people's idea of psychic phenomena uh, bring forth images of Miss um, Cleo's psychic hotline or something along those lines, or a gypsy <laughs> with a ball in front of them. Because the reality is there's nothing like that, nothing like that at all. Um, and one of the most important things that people need to realize uh, in remote viewing is that the remote viewer works blind to the target. He has absolutely no idea what the target is. And that's in order to keep the remote viewer from their um, imagination from bringing forth information that actually would not be relevant to the target. So if you have no idea what you are looking uh, for, then the information that you bring back is probably going to be much more accurate. And the remote viewers also um, work under rules. I mean, if you don't follow the protocols of remote viewing, then it isn't remote viewing. I mean, that's the big difference between a remote viewer and a natural psychic. I mean, all remote viewers um, are psychics, but not all natural psychics are remote viewers. And it's the protocol and methodology that makes the difference. Mm -hmm. John, my background is very much, I'm a scientist in my background. I'm a human engineer psychologist as well. I'm a scientist in terms of the human process, the cognition. I was also raised in Los Alamos, New Mexico, surrounded by scientists, as you can well imagine, and from the nuclear age. And science is both a marvel and it's empirical. It's both imaginative and it's just a lot of hard work. And most people, I think, don't actually know that. For example, Einstein was keenly imaginative and, and actually better in his imagination than in his mathematics. Uh, so uh, when you mention that science is the backbone of this, isn't remote viewing also very much connected to science reaching out to the imaginative, the psychics? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that history? 
Well, you know, the fact of the matter is that remote viewing was born in an age um, where science had really advanced and the circumstances under which remote viewing was brought about actually have to do with not so much science, but actually political motivations along the lines of the fact that the United States was heavily involved in a Cold War with the Soviet pact. And this brought about a, oh, how would you put it, a a quest, if you will, for new ways of gathering information on your opponent. And one of the reasons why the remote viewing program came into being was the fact that information began uh, to drift overseas from the Soviet Union, that they were beginning to become heavily involved in psychic phenomena as a uh, as a mode of not only intelligence gathering, but also as an active part of their defense, meaning that they could use it as an offensive weapon. And this concerned a number of people in the intelligence communities, and it brought about a, a low-level program that eventually morphed into um, what is more commonly referred to as Project Stargate. But in doing so, they wanted to remain as uh, strictly scientific as possible. They didn't want to go into metaphysics. They wanted something that was hard science. And so that was the reason behind the fact that they brought two laser physicists, not psychologists, but hard scientists, into this project in order to run these experiments. And... So the entire program was always run under a, a science background with oversight. And that really differentiates it from um, most of the other aspects of, of uh, psychic phenomena out there. Well, a, be- a beautiful, quick rendition of history. It is a, a wonderful uh, story. I, it's an amazing story as to how this got started and your book of Sorcerer's Apprentice and the subtitle is A Skeptic's Journey into the CIA's Project Stargate by John Herlowski. Of course it's available on Amazon and you can also scope it out on John's website com, and a number of other locations A Sorcerer's Apprentice by John Herlowski. And John, as we progress this conversation between the two of us, let's just give some examples of what remote viewing has produced. And and I'm going to give a very simple set of my own as you contemplate what experiences of remote viewing drove the point home that this was truly a phenomena that had was reality-based and not just your imagination. I think it's a trust and verification component of remote viewing that's just so excellent. So here's one of my examples, one of my first classes in remote viewing, following the protocol I was being taught. I think it was the last remote viewing of the particular lengthy session. And we were given our target, again, hidden in an envelope, hidden behind a number so not even the teacher would know which what the target would be. And I eventually wrote down certain things. I can consolidate it into pink, porcelain, hard, and a bowl, round like a bowl. And that is what I was able to consolidate. We open up the envelope and find that it is a photograph of a pink toilet. So that's an example of having gone through, a brief example of having gone through a protocol. Another example is, we're told to remote view into an actual physical box. And in so doing, I saw pastel colors, could smell clay, and could feel a kind of cottony-type stuffing, like the type of stuffing in a stuffed animal. And lo and behold, opening up the box, 
It contained little containers of Play-Doh and all sorts of pastel colors. And yes, in fact, this, the cotton item had come from the stuffing of a stuffed animal. So that's, those are two of my prime examples that are my trust and verification moments that say, okay, there's something to this. And even though I couldn't say pink toilet, I could pick up those sorts of things. But John, your examples in your book are amazing. They send goosebumps up my back. So take us into this world with some amazing examples of your own. Well, um, I can give you uh, some of the examples that are in the book, but I think I'll leave that for those um, to read about. What I will do (laughs) is I will bring up um, some examples that were done by the military remote viewers in the Stargate program. Okay. And um, I find that these are really evocative and give you a, a sense of what it is that remote viewing can actually accomplish. And the first of these is probably the one that's the most well-known, or at least it's the one that is referred to most often. And that one is the... Um, the viewing that was done by remote viewer Joe McMonigal. And he was given a target in Soviet Russia that was this large uh, warehouse-like building, but it was really, really big. I mean, not something that was relatively small like a shopping center, but something really large. And it had been built in entire secrecy. And um, the intelligence services did not have any assets on the ground um, that were able to penetrate into this building to find out what was going on inside. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely uh, secretive. They, they were not able to get anything in terms of signals intelligence or anything along those lines, along the usual methods of intelligence gathering that could tell them what was going on inside the building. And, of course... Uh, satellites are un- unable to penetrate inside a building to tell you what's going on inside of them. Mm-hmm. So the task was given to Joseph McMonagall to find out what was going on inside through the use of remote viewing. And when, after Joe had done his cool down and got into his zone, so to speak, and actively began to describe the target, he described two submarines on the inside of the building, one of which was a, um, a well-known um, type of submarine in the Soviet Navy. However, the other description was of something that was much larger, much more massive, and something that had never been seen before in the Soviet Navy. And he described how this, this um machine was so much larger than the regular-sized submarine next to it, and that it had 20 missile tubes. And unlike the previous missile tubes um, that were utilized in Soviet submarines, which were aft of the control tower, what is called the sail, these tubes were actually in front of the sail. And this machine was absolutely enormous. Well, when this information was relayed back to the powers that be, their first concern was the fact that this building was located approximately five kilometers from any body of water. And so the idea that they would be building a submarine on land seemed a little outrageous to them. I mean, how are you going to get these submarines down to the water? So Joe was retasked with going back, and he was actually asked to move ahead in time in intervals of six months to find out how they were supposed to get these submarines down to the water. Hmm. Well, as Joe extended himself in time and space, he saw that they would be building a rail system from the building all the way down to the waterfront to a series of docks that they were that they would build. And sure enough, satellite photographs over the next year showed that 
this actually did happen, that they did build these tracks down to the waterfront. They did build a, a series of docks down there. And Joe was able to give them the time frame where the submarine would be moved down there. And they took this as being reality. And they altered the orbits of the overhead satellites such that they were actually able to image the submarine before they were the Russians were able to cover up the hull to keep the the satellites from finding out what it actually was. And mm-hmm. so it was confirmed and this was actually the first view of the Soviet's um Typhoon's missile submarine. Wow. That's uh, very that's very dynamic. That's very uh, amazing. John when when you started training with us it, it, there there must have been a time in your own experience of this where you said, "Well, can I be as clear-headed as this example with Joe McGonagall?" I mean, is it and what was that clear-headed remote viewing experience for you that said, "Yes, I can also become this clear uh, headed traveler, this remote viewer. What, what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, I'd like to be able to say that I had this confidence in myself that I was going to be able to do this at the drop of a hat, but in reality, um, I had a lot of doubts about not only the idea that I would be able to do this, but that this was a, a real phenomena. And so in, in 1999, the spring of, uh, when I walked into, into Dave's class at UCLA, um, he had each member of the, of the class, which was about 15 people, stand up and introduce themselves and give a basic um, background of what, what they did and the reason why they wanted to learn remote viewing. And so when it came my time, you know, I explained who I was and, you know, my background, and I said, you know, um, everybody here has this idea that this is a real phenomenon, but to be honest with you, uh, I am a skeptic. Uh, I am not entirely convinced that this is a real phenomenon. Um, you know, my background is one of, of uh, skepticism and the scientific method, and that... Um, I did come here, however, with an open mind to see whether or not there was anything to this. And so I was the only one in the entire class that had this outlook on remote feeling. So unlike the others, you know, I, I actually entered into this, um, number one, not really entirely sure that this was a real phenomenon, and number two, not really, under, not really um, knowing whether or not I could actually do it. And <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting and perhaps a little ironic uh, in that after we had received the first days of training and on our first target try, I was the only one in the class who didn't get anything at all. <laughs> Frustrating. But, yeah, it was um, not only a bit embarrassing, um, I was a little nonplussed to say the least, mm-hmm. but it turns out, according to Dave, that it was sim- a simple error in the in the um, the protocols for remote viewing that caused the problem. And he pointed out where I had made my mistake. And so the following day, when we were given a different target, I actually did have a breakthrough and actually was able to describe it accurately. Mm-hmm. What but, was that like for you? Well, what did that feel like to you to go kind of? Oh my goodness! I've I, I really just engaged this capacity. Yeah, this wasn't you know an instantaneous realization of the reality of of um, okay. applied consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I was successful at doing this, and I would continue to have success throughout my time with Dave Morehouse and with other instructors, uh, there was always this core hardball disbelief in what I was doing deep inside my psyche. 
and you know each time that I would do a session I was I would always go into it with this idea that you know this I know how can I do this 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 can't really be real there's got to be some sort of trick or something that's going on here and then I would have a successful session and you know I it would break down another part of the brick wall that was my my mm-hmm. disbelief system or part of my mm-hmm. belief system actually that didn't believe in this this idea mm-hmm. of of you know this non-local communication across space and time. Mm-hmm. I uh, a week ago was teaching a class that was kind of exemplifying the difference between remote viewing, astral projection, and shamanic journey, and the attendees were uh, engineers and hypnotherapists, and it was a military individual, a business person, and then just a curious woman that just came in and said, you know, I have a free night. I just want to experience this. That's fine. She was completely skeptical with what went on. We did our final uh, uh, experience, and I I will say that it it didn't follow the protocol of remote viewing, so I won't call it remote viewing, but somewhat similarly. And she was the most uh, spot-on viewer, I'm going to say, for lack of a better word, in, in her describing what was in the envelope that ultimately was opened, the target, uh, she could describe the bridge, the water, the air, the, uh, the the movement of what was going on. It was such a clear depiction. Her response afterward was so interesting since she was the least experienced. Everybody else had, had some sort of uh, involvement in these domains of moving beyond time and space. Um, she could not believe that she had done it. I mean, she she could have thought that it was an apple or a chair or furniture or a person or a dog. or And she could have thought anything else than what she actually thought or perceived. Um, but because she perceived it, she just assumed, oh, that's a fluke, not recognizing how completely uh, improbable it was for her to fluke so precisely. And I think it's that skepticism that's hard to kind of move beyond until you finally have your verification moment where you go, okay, I really am involved in this. And I love the way you, John, in your book, travel the reader through your process of getting to the point of going, okay, this is for real. Again, we're talking with John Herlowski from A Sorcerer's Apprentice. The subtitle is A Skeptic's Journey into the CIA Project Stargate. And once, what, John, once you realized you actually are doing this, what changes happened inside of you, your perspective of the world, the metaphysics of life, time, space, comprehension? What changed inside of you that had to change? It's demanded to change because you've had these types of experiences over and over and over again. Well, you know, my my acceptance of the phenomena didn't come all at once, as I stated. Uh, it was it was just one of those moments where after I had done a session and I didn't have that skepticism that I realized that I had made the transition from skeptic to um, a realist in, in oh. regard to this particular phenomena. Um, oh. All of my my uh, my sessions that I had had, um, there was always this this lack of of acceptance, and I always felt as I went through uh, my training that I was caught between my past and my future, and that you know my belief system, and this is probably pretty typical of most people. You know, you have this belief system that you've built up over the years, and there are certain things that are allowed within that belief system, and then there are certain things in your belief system that you do not allow. Right, well said. And here I was, you know, in a situation where um, I was going completely outside of my belief system, and I was having success at something that supposedly wasn't possible. And so, you know, in my in my training sessions, you know, there was a there was a point where um, where I believed, where I finally did accept that the that that reality was was truth. 
but you have to understand also that you know your mind, that belief system. You know, there's always that ghost in there of of your past that comes back to haunt you on occasions. And I found myself in in one particular situation, which is depicted in the book, where um, I was in uh, Dave Morehouse's explorers group and we had been asked to do operational work on the first pilot that was shot down in the Mm -hmm. first Gulf War that had not been repatriated and who had originally been listed as killed in action on the first night but uh, subsequently uh, became listed as missing in action and we had been tasked um, by the VFW on behalf of the family to find out what actually happened to um, Michael Scott Spiker. And this occurred in um, 2003. And by and large, the overwhelming uh, consensus of the remote viewers in Dave's course was that he was alive at that time, uh, but he was um, not in good shape. Hmm. Well... Of course, in in 2009, um, his body was recovered not far Mm. from the crash site. And, of Mm. course, the Pentagon put out the information that, you know, that their original um, assessment of Spiker was correct, that he was shot down by a a MiG and he um, died in the crash of his aircraft on the first night Mm. and never... Mm. um, there was never any real chance of, of ever giving him back. Well, of course, this flew in completely in the face of the information that myself and the other remote viewers had. Right. And, you know, being a person at the time that felt that, you know, why would the government lie about something like this, I believed them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really shook to the core my belief in in not only remote viewing and its efficacy, but also my own um, ability to do so. Because, mm-hmm. you know, this was getting solid knowledge that my um, session was incorrect. Right. And it had a profound effect on me. I mean, at the time I was I was working on a book of my experiences, and I was, um, really heavily involved in remote viewing, and I had been doing experiments and other things. And this shook me so badly that I put all of that aside. I put away my mm-hmm. workbook. I stopped remote viewing. Um, my uh, the the manuscript for my book, I I, I put it away mm-hmm. because wow. I had completely, you know, been blown away by this this thought that we could have been so wrong. Right. And so, um, at the time, I was actually, um, during the time after 2009, uh, I was working as a a private military subcontractor for a company called DMI, um, and Dave Morehouse happened to be the the vice president for operations for that company at that time, and Hmm. uh, we were involved in in training um, the Special Operations Forces soldiers in combat trauma management, and you know, I we were both of us were so busy at the time that I never really approached him with um, what his feelings were as to what you know what was found out or what the the Pentagon was saying about what actually happened to Spiker versus um, what we had had come up with, mm-hmm. and. But there was always this core nagging that I had in the back of my mind about what really did happen to him. And so in, in the spring of 2011, I finally went back online and started to, to um, do a search on Spiker. And I was getting all of these, these citations and posts that said that the Pentagon lied and that the truth was was that he did survive, and wow. a lot of the the uh, the information pointed uh, came from a former naval intelligence analyst by the name of Amy Waters Yarsinski, 
who had written two books on the subject, one which was called um, No One Left Behind, which was written not long after Spiker had been shot down and information was starting to drift back that he was still alive. And then the final book on, on the subject of Spiker, which was written after he was his remains were recovered, which was An American in the Basement. Wow. And her book... Um, seemingly put the lie to the Pentagon story of what actually happened to him. Mm. And so I contacted Amy Yarsinski and asked her straight out. I gave her a complete readout and briefing on uh, the work that we had done for the VFW, and, and, and I had sent her copies of my session summaries. And she said straight mm. out that the information that I had was, was absolutely correct. Oh wow! Wrong with what we had put on, and wow. that the the consensus um, information that we had from some thirty five of Dave's best viewers was completely uh, correct and refuted mm-hmm. totally what the Pentagon was saying. Powerful. Pentagon lied. Right. And it had to do with the fact that Spiker had not been shot down by a MIG as you know, one of the Iraqi MIGs, as was reported in the initial report of his downing, but rather he had been a victim of fratricide, mm-hmm. uh, what, what is known as blue on blue, or the fact that he had been actually shot down by friendly fire, mm-hmm. and that he had actually survived and had lived for years with the Bedouins in the desert, trying to get somebody's attention by leaving messages in the desert that were clearly visible to uh, intelligence assets overhead, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, um, the United States never followed up on it and mm-hmm. left him behind. And he was eventually discovered by Iraqi forces of Saddam Hussein and captured. Mm-hmm. And the entire group of Bedouins that had uh, kept him safe uh, was eliminated, killed by the Iraqi forces. And he eventually um, succumbed to his wounds, from what I understand. Well, I'm having such empathy for what he went through, as well as your own sense of relief that... Yeah, it made This is powerful difference. stuff, and stuff that might even threaten those that don't want to be seen. <laughs> well, it's true. So. You, know, you cannot hide the truth from a remote viewer. And there is nothing that you can hide from them. I mean, there's no way you can shield from a remote viewer. Um, so, you know, those who, who want to hide the truth, those who want to keep the truth from coming out, you know, the idea that remote viewing is available and, and available to anyone can be looked at as being threatening. I think that this is one reason I'm so very excited about remote viewing assholes objection shamanic journey i'm just going to cluster them in a in a in a parenthesis because it does enable anybody who engages in those practices seriously and with refinement and with kind of a judicious and urge to be empirical until they really become quite refined is that they can be quite powerful uh in terms of what they can perceive and contribute to situations in a quite powerful way and I don't know if you're comfortable. Many remote viewers are not, uh, I've discovered, in talking about remote influencing because I I think that the power goes beyond the scene into actually things like remote healing or distance healing or remote impact on a situation. Uh, Recently, a, a group that I do some remote viewing with they were very much in trying to discern or, or decipher what was going on with the situation. And I kind of bowed out and I said, look, I think I've gone as far as I want to in terms of seeing this. Now I'd like to move into influencing, which means that I'd like to change anything that's not going to be of pleasant consequences to the best of my influential ability. However, that means that I'm going to change. I'm going to try to change reality in time and space. Uh, and, and when you try to change reality in time and space, well, frankly, you've kind of blown the empirical model out of its waters because you can't 
go see if you were right because you've changed what is in time and space the future. So it's a it's it's a slippery wall in terms of empiricism, but I've had so many amazing outcomes that are startlingly uh, consistent uh, that I think this remote influencing is an extension of remote viewing is. It, it is something that we as citizens uh, wanting a peaceful planet need to really harness. Uh, would you care to comment on that or bring your own experience into this? Well, um, remote influencing. Um, I think people have the wrong idea about what actually that entails. Now, if you Ask some of the military remote viewers. Some of them will say it's real. Some of them will say it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned it directly from the man who uh, codified the, uh, pro- the protocols for it, right. uh, Lynn Buchanan. Yep. And, of course, you know, it's a real phenomena. But mm-hmm. it's not, you know, this Svengali idea where you reach into somebody's mind and you can make them you know, like a Manchurian <laughs> candidate, so to speak, <laughs> well, you know, and spend golly them into doing whatever you want them to do. Maybe. It's nothing like that at all, unfortunately, <laughs> or maybe fortunately. Um, <laughs> um, I think the best way is to give you an example of it. The only example that I know where it was used operationally and I think you'll see that it's not as, as fearful a a uh, phenomena or technology uh, than you might think. And that was the South African security forces had a Soviet agent in custody. And they knew that he was sending his information to his contacts outside of South Africa through some sort of device, but they didn't know what this device was, and a search of his apartment had not produced anything. Mm-hmm. And this uh, particular Soviet individual individual was extremely intransigent and would not give up any information to um, the interrogators. And so um, someone in, in the... Um, South African intelligence services contacted the CIA and asked if if they might be able to help out. Well, that um, um, that was that request was relayed um, fortuitously to the remote viewers in the Stargate program, and uh, a remote viewer was assigned to actually access this man's mind to find out the information. Now, it's interesting because when the remote viewer first accessed this man's mind, he was not able to read it to find out where this item was being um, hidden. He said that this man's mind was very, very closed, very, very um, locked up, if you will probably because of the fact that, you know, having so many secrets in the mind, um, he had to keep, you know, really conscious um, collection of them to make sure that he wouldn't inadvertently spill any information in casual conversation. And so what the remote viewer had to do was to use this technique of remote influencing. And what he basically did was he inserted himself into the mind of this individual and he started to to bring up the idea of his family and you know how he could how he probably missed his family and didn't he miss your family and you miss your family and he kept at him you know to talking about the man's family he didn't go after the the information what he wanted to do was break down the man's barriers and so he kept trying to bring the idea of the man's family up, you know, that he was distanced from them, that he hadn't seen them in years, that he wanted to be with his family. And little by little, the man's intransigence started to change, and he started to focus more and more on his family, about how he missed them. And so once the... uh, 
the remote viewer had his attention, if you will, subconsciously with this idea. He kept pushing at that and saying, you know, you want to see your boy. You want to, to see your family. And so as he got him more and more distracted with the idea of his family and everything else, he uh, brought up the idea, you know, you could go home if you, if you let them, if you gave them the information on, on the device. And for a moment, you know, the man was distracted, and he started thinking about this um, this calculator, you know, oh. a regular, ordinary old calculator, you know, electronic mm-hmm. calculator that was in his office. And then mm-hmm. it was gone. You know, this, this thought was gone. Mm-hmm. But it was too late. So the remote viewer said, you know, he seems to fixate on this electronic calculator that's in his apartment. Maybe you should check that out. So the South African security forces went back to his apartment, and sure enough, there was this everyday, ordinary calculator. Only when they opened it up, they found the circuitry for a compact encoding and translating device that he used to hook up to the phone lines to send the information out. Interesting. So, you see, it's, it's not you know, the Manchurian candidate where you <laughs> then golly somebody into doing something yeah. that they don't want to do. It's a very, very subtle approach, a very, very subtle way of, of uh, influencing someone. But you can well, see the power mm-hmm. of this particular technology, how it well, is. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm a hypnotherapist, a clinical hypnotherapist, and I- I'm well aware that anybody that comes into my office... I might approach them directly over the top, under the bottom, in order to move into where we need to go. So it's it's almost like the science of the human mind uh, has to be understood how to approach it in order to have an impact on it. I well, think that's where that, Lynn actually did get those those mm-hmm. protocols where he I'm where sure. he got them was a combination of hyp- hypnosis and neuro linguistic programming. Yes. which are tools okay. of the clinical psychologist. So I'm sure mm-hmm. you're most familiar with those. Well familiar. It's, um, you know, you hope that these remote viewing skills are in the hands of benevolent people, but uh, let's be clear that, you know, whoever is interested in having power is going to try to access any sort of ways of having power. That's one reason, John, I so much wanted to have you on this program because, this show is all about empowering people in the ordinary, everyday life so that none of us have to sit feeling like we're victimized by people who appear to have bigger, more more broad-range influence. Um, I think that I've experimented with this on so many levels that I'm quite clear that one little person does not need to feel powerless when they know that they have tools like this available. And uh, it, that's one of the big changes I noticed also in your book that it seems like you began to get greater and greater uh, appreciation for your own ability to interface with individuals in the remote viewing planes, so to speak, the, the matrix. You began to really expand your sense that you're not little at all, that you're part of maybe a, a humongous infinite matrix but nonetheless you are an influential part of that matrix and that's a wow that's a big change on your own yes, self-identity wow. as well as on the metaphysical definition of the, of the of the cosmos yes what did you want to say oh well i was just going to agree with you you know one of the things um that i learned and that actually dave morehouse was told before he was read onto the program was that if you bring this into your life, your life will never be the same. And right. that's been consistently the truth with most of the people that I've spoken to that went on to take Dave's classes or Paul Smith's classes or Lynn Buchanan's classes, mm-hmm. is that their life, their uh, their belief system was yeah. never the same after that. Mm-hmm. Because now you you are embracing a technology that allows you to transcend time and space that right. virtually has no limitations. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
you, as I said before, you cannot hide the truth from the from a remote viewer, and mm-hmm. that is a scary thing to some people. Oh. <laughs> right. You know, I uh, politicians, mm-hmm. you know, that lie all the time. You know, they're scared of something like this because of the fact that you cannot lie. You cannot hide the truth from mm-hmm. a remote viewer. And the truth and the truth and the and the real the reality of that came to me after the the um the explorers group did the sessions um on Michael Scott's biker. And yeah. we directly refuted everything that the, the Pentagon said. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out we were right mm-hmm. and the Pentagon lied. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the the real wonderful things about remote viewing is is that it it opens up the real truth of a universe. You know that the, mm. the truth is out there, like the old X Files saying goes. Uh, yes. <laughs> I yes. mean, it's it's an empowering force, mm-hmm. and uh, utilized by those of us who who believe in in the use of remote viewing for the advancement of man, it can be definitely a powerful, positive force for man. Uh, I am uh, blown away from with this. And uh, so it, I think that one of the things your book over and over repeats, almost to the point where I had to skip the parts because you were repeating them over and over, but with great merit. And the merit was, the social connection, the uh, the closeness with the people that share these experiences is absolutely quite evident in your book. And uh, the reason that it has so much merit is that it is wonderful to be able to find people who are sharing these experiences because typically you can't just have a dialogue on an ordinary coffee chat or over the, the water cooler about oh, let me tell you about my remote viewing experience yesterday. You just, it's like it's not like this conversational easy thing to do, but then when you meet people of like-kinded experiences or at least the urge to explore, it's kind of like a part of you that can open up and go, oh, sure, I got my hair down. Did you know? And you can launch yourself into these almost unbelievable, everybody else would think you were crazy, but another remote viewer gets it. And um, yes, you know, that's that was what one you of the capture really in your book so well. That was yeah. one of the really interesting things is the people that I met in these classes. Um, you know, these were not wide-eyed, starry-eyed, new-age-type people for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I met people who were housewives, who were doctors, who were deep-sea divers, who were, mm-hmm. you know, um, mathematicians, who were priests. And a whole, I mean, you could look across the entire spectrum of yeah. humanity, and they were all there, and they all mm-hmm. had this desire, you know, to know, you know, to look beyond the threshold of everyday knowledge. I mean, this to me was probably one of the most important aspects mm-hmm. of learning remote viewing. Was wasn't so much the fact that you could use this technology to transcend time and space and view things outside the normal perception modes and bring back <laughs> You say that as if that's such a casual, everyday thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it is for us. Yeah. But what was important to me, and especially being, number one, being of the law enforcement and paramilitary um, community, being an insular and a closed individual, I don't normally open up to people when I first meet them. Um, you know, you build up certain defense mechanisms as a police officer. And it was this, and it made, you know, my transformation that much more difficult, as you will see in the book. But it also, one of the really important things from my point of view was the fact that I was able to find a part of my humanity that had been closed off for so long and that it was the individuals around me that mm. brought this out and made me actually a more complete person. Beautiful. Wow. 
how many levels of of experience that is. That's amazing. Do you think that because of that experience, you have become more benevolent, more humane, and more uh, able to use remote viewing in a way that has loaded with compassion and empathy? Well, you know, I've always had a certain amount of compassion and empathy. Um, I found that that was sorely tested in many situations when I was a police officer. Okay. Uh, one of the the more harsher aspects of law enforcement work is the fact that you uh, deal with people on a level that is usually not the most um, ah. positive, if you right. will. Right, right. And then in many cases, when you see people, you see them at their worst rather than right. at their best. And so it tends to give you a rather slanted uh, view of everyone else who isn't a police officer. Right. And I found myself falling into that particular mode after so many years. And, you know, that that translates into your everyday life and the fact that, you know, in my personal contacts, um, a lot of people said, you know, you've got a wall around you that nobody can get through to. And, you know, it's it's just part of that those defense mechanisms, you know, to protect you from the everyday outrages that you see as a law enforcement mm. officer. That, mm. you know, that is a, a double-edged sword. You know, on the one sure. hand, it, it helps you survive the things that you see. and But on the other hand, of course, it keeps you from being more human. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I felt that my experiences with the people around me, as I portray in the book, had such a huge impact on me yeah. and gave me the positive thoughts that, you know, maybe there is hope for humanity because all mm. the people that were involved in these classes were positive people. They had energy mm. and they had Mm-hmm. Um, really positive thoughts. I mean, these were the type of people that I wanted to associate with. Understand. You know, we always had the idea that you know we we want to do these things. We want to learn this technology to enhance mankind. Mm-hmm. You know, to to bring positive change to the world, Absolutely. and that would be a powerful, powerful incentive. Mm-hmm. I could not agree with you more. Uh, there's always going to be dark around us, but the more light we can flood it with, the less the less the darkness has to permeate. <laughs> so, yes, very much. So. Oh, I just uh, really appreciate that component of of what you have said. I'm wondering if, as we close out the last few moments, you would share your current experience of the matrix of the metaphysical construct or structure as you go into your sanctuary and then you venture out because I I think it's just so intriguing as I talk to anybody that does these sorts of things uh, what what your experience of the infinite is not to create a dogma but to kind of uh, give us a sense of awe and wonder about the big picture um, you know, I I go into what it's like to experience a remote viewing session uh, in the book, yeah. and the reader will get a, a really good idea of what it's like in a remote viewing session, what actually the remote viewer experiences. Your um, book is excellent that way, yes. Um, the... The Matrix of All Creation... Um, you know, it's it's interesting because we are finding out more and more uh, from a scientific standpoint that this theorized matrix of all creation that was a, a construct, basically, of um, Ingo Swan, the, uh, uh, the man who is considered to be the creator of uh, remote, coordinate remote viewing. Um, and it may turn out that his construct may actually have physical reality in our universe. Hmm. And um, the, the theories of quantum physics nowadays 
are now becoming more and more involved in this idea where the reality that we see around us is just a construct and may Mm. not actually be the reality that we see, that Mm. the underlying reality is something entirely different. And when you bring in the ideas of of quantum mechanics, for instance, where particles have a schizoid existence, you know, where where a particle isn't actually in a certain place at a certain time unless it's observed, and thus, if it isn't observed, it can virtually exist anywhere. So, and you talk about the ideas of uh, where we might live, for instance, in a holographic universe, where what we appear to experience is a four-dimensional reality with three space dimensions and one time dimension, may actually be mapped holographically onto a two-dimensional surface of a what is called a brain, um, which is a string theoretical concept. Mm-hmm. And so this three-dimensional reality that we experience in an everyday situation may be nothing more than the same thing that was experienced in the movie The Matrix by those individuals that were inside of a computer program Mm -hmm. and who experienced at that point, you know, to them it was a three- or four-dimensional existence, but in reality it was nothing more than electrical impulses moving through the innards of a computer. Oh, I think it would be quite fun to have a collection of remote viewers talking about their perception of the cosmic structure of things. (laughs) You know, because I think we'd all have diversity, but we'd all have like an intriguing uh, overlapping as well. Oh, John Herlowski, thank you so much for sharing. This is just the beginning of of your journey to share with individuals. And you put more detail into the A Sorcerer's Apprentice subtitle, a Skeptic's Journey into the CIA's Project Stargate, available on Amazon. You can get it on your Kindle Cloud or your, or your wonderful devices. Um, I took it to France with me and enjoyed every moment over my nice French t- coffee. It was <laughs> it's like, this is an enjoyable book that also will make your heart stop, and you'll just have to put it down and go, oh, wow. And then you know you haven't even begun to explore what you are all about as a human being. Folks, John, any last parting words for our listeners for this particular program that you want to make sure our listeners know? Um, Only that, you know, don't take my word for it. You know, I wrote the book as as my experience, (laughs) um, but just as I did when I read David Morehouse's book that brought me into his classes, uh, don't take anything at first value. Don't take anything at face value. The mm-hmm. truth is out there. Mm-hmm. You know, what I experienced, I put in a book, but I I don't expect readers to take that as gospel. I expect them to go mm-hmm. to to light a fire under them and to go out there for themselves mm-hmm. to, to experience Beautiful. the reality of all of this. And indeed you do light a fire. It's well said. Trust and then verify. <laughs> it's like exactly. trust it enough to go explore it, but definitely verify it. Yes, go ahead. Definitely. I, that is exactly the same way that I did things. You know, I, you, you have to go out there and find out for yourself. Don't, if you want knowledge, you have to go out there and explore and find it for yourself. Don't take the words of others. The words of others are simply a guide for your own personal knowledge. So be like oh. me. Go out there and find out for the truth for yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. John, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And listeners, there's going to be more to come. John has many interviews out there on the Internet, and you're going to be uh, joining even more individuals, I understand. When's your next class that you teach that people can hear you, John? When's your next interview so people can follow your stream of thought? When's your next book coming out? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually... Right at this moment, um, I don't have anything set. Um, I was um, called by Art Bell's uh, producer last month. Beautiful. And, and 
I'm hoping that uh, they will call me back and give me a chance to be on, on Art's new show. Um, I'm going to be making a personal appearance down in El Segundo at uh, the end of November uh, in a personal appearance, and um, there will be more about that on my website. Uh, yes, that's we November 28th yes. to the meetup group called Remote Viewing. That's where I yes. met, met you, and please, listeners, come out. It's an amazing experience, a great group of individuals who are out to investigate possibilities. Think outside your box. Live outside your box. There's so much more to discover. John, we thank you. Everybody, have a dynamic day. This world is far too intriguing to ignore and become passive and bored. So live well. Take care. Bye-bye, John. Bye-bye.